Plan Heroes acknowledges the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. nice if it if it would spread a bit more because I, I really love it understanding that you gathering the necessary genetic knowledge number one is not that difficult not that expensive not anymore not like it used to be but also that knowledge that you're gathering to support the translocation will inform you in a whole it's the one single test that you will do to inform you on your translocation strategy will also inform you about all sorts of other things, right? So understanding the mating system, understanding the overall diversity, how it's distributed, understanding if the hybridization issue, understanding taxonomy, etc. etc. Liza, put a smile upon your face. I wanna see you glow, so let your essence show amongst the people who are down like me. Amongst the people who are down like me. Oh Liza. When your head's above the clouds, you have this grace and air. I long to join you there so I can get above these troubles and see what's more to see. I can get above and see what's more to see. Welcome to Blind Heroes. I'm Chantal, and this time we are meeting the critically endangered Hibertia spinantha, or Julian's Hibertia. A plant that shows there is still a place for new discoveries, even in Australia's biggest city, Sydney and that the still slightly intimidating world of genetics or genomics has a central role in conserving and relocating plants. So if you're interested in genetics, conservation, or uncovering mysteries, come with me as we visit the lab, the nursery, and the tiny bush fragments that are havens for urban diversity. The first in Karingai Council, where we are meeting Jacob Scythe the council environment manager that oversees maintenance of the Habertia population. In 2007, a council staff member who was working in bush regeneration came across a plant that he thought was something different and through a process of scientific review it was found that it was a new species. So it was listed as critically endangered in 2015 and this was the site where the plant was first identified but it has been identified from a few other locations since then but in this space is actually still the highest number of individuals anywhere. So it's really important for the species because it's its stronghold in the wild. Jacob is an example of a lot of people that work in conservation. He's driven, enthusiastic, passionate, and importantly, he's open to sharing knowledge of the species with local council residents. And the council has proactively pursued research into the species. One of the big things that we've done here is to collaborate with a PhD student and working together, we're really taking huge steps to secure the population, not just here, but also to create a population off-site, which is going to help us to really secure the species into the future. This little plant has touched many lives, and many of the stories aren't mine to share. But a part of it does involve me, 
as that student. So I'd like you to come on a journey and find out what we have learnt about this inconspicuous little subshrub since it was first discovered in 2015. The first thing is maybe that the epithet spanantha doesn't quite fit. I'm in the field monitoring the plants with Ingrid Learman, who's been working with Hibertia spanantha since 2016. We said it always flowers profusely and regularly as yeah. well. It's yeah. so funny. I think why it's called seldom flowering is because it took the guy who discovered it so long to find one flowering. Because if you don't know when it's flowering, I think mine was flowering in August. In August? Yes. And oh. now we have November. Yes. And they are still not open. So it's a wide range of months where it can be flowering. This inconspicuous plant with its bright yellow flowers is a model for why it's important to learn about ecology. From the moment it was noticed as something different, the plant just brought out curiosity in those around it. As Ingrid mentioned, Andrew Robinson, who discovered it, had to spend a long time revisiting plants until he could get flowers, the reproductive material needed to identify it. It's an absolute credit to his dedication. Did you notice as well that she said, my one? That's because Ingrid and her husband Lutz were the co-discoverers of the second population. It's pretty exciting, hey? I wanted to know what it's like to discover a new population of a species. Uh, exciting, it was exciting, yes. My husband was involved with the Bushwijen company who was responsible for once. So they showed us uh, an example and then I discovered the one in white because it looked so, like it was just flowering and it looked so similar. That was obvious. Ingrid has been contributing time to the species for six years, as well as many other professionals and volunteers. But how did I end up involved? It all started with a big road development and me working as a consultant. In 2015, the lead botanist at the consultancy I worked with discovered population number three as part of surveys for a big urban infrastructure project. And finally, a fourth population was discovered in 2018 when surveys for a subdivision were undertaken. When I started working with the species, my job was to augment the existing wild population as insurance in case that big development nearby damaged the plants. But over time, the translocated plants died, despite good rain and good health just turned brown mid-flowering. I'm not alone in noticing this. Mitigation translocations happen all over Australia and the globe, and success rates aren't great. So I started asking the question, can we really translocate a species that we know very little about? And that led me to deciding to start a PhD <laughs> to find out what I'd need to know about the plant to make sure that next time, and in Sydney, there would be a next time, a translocation would be a success. It included finding out all the things that we didn't know, 
How does it reproduce? Are pollinators even present in these tiny bush fragments? Does it clone? Can it pollinate itself? Is inbreeding an issue? And finally, what is the best way to grow plants anyway so that they survive after they're planted? I found an unanticipated and intimidating starting place, genomics. Okay, so I'm, oh, turn off the radio. <laughs> I'm about to go and see Jason and Maurizio. Uh, they are conservation geneticists at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney. And they have been absolutely invaluable. Sorry, I've got a reverse. <laughs> they have been absolutely invaluable in helping me plan and undertake a genetic analysis of Hibertia spinampa. Uh, yeah, and also they've kind of given me confidence that what I'm interpreting is accurate, which has been really nice. I'm Maurizio Seto, and I head the Research Center for Ecosystem Resilience at the Botanic Gardens here in Sweden. I'm Jason Bragg, I'm a research scientist interested in using genomics to inform restoration and conservation decisions for plants. If you are like me and wondering the difference between genetics and genomics, genetics is the term for the earlier field based on the study of inheritance, whereas genomics is a branch of genetics focused on single organism genomes, where thousands to millions of genetic markers can be analysed to enable population-level comparisons between individuals. But why should plant conservation include genetics or genomics? Why are conservation genetics or conservation genomics important is that really with minimum effort and minimum resources, you obtain baseline information that then will be useful in multiple conservation-related art. That's not, not to say that that's the only information that you need. That's not to say that that's the most important information that you need. But if you do that as a starting point, it will really help you with making decisions immediately and deciding on what are the type of research you, know, you need to do. When I first contacted the team in 2019, I was a little taken aback at their first question. Are you even sure it's a species? Oh dear. <laughs> from there, we collected leaf material from all the plants in the known populations, plus co-occurring herbertia to check for cross-pollination and to make sure that it was a unique species. Four of 81. Four of 81. Four of 81. Let's be honest, collecting leaves in the bush is one thing but the skills required to analyse thousands of single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, that geneticists use to determine frequency of allele similarities or differences is a little bit beyond me. But this team are experts and increasingly use genomics to help guide conservation projects. Jason's going to give you a little bit of Genomics 101. If we just go back and think of DNA as being... Uh a little string of different molecular building blocks and they come in four different kinds a c's g's and t's so let's let's think of a little sequence where we have a c g t but at the g there on one strand of dna there's an a c g t 
On the other strand, there's an ACAT. And so um, in, if each individual in a diploid species has two copies of its DNA, one that in, it inherits from each of its parents, we've just described a scenario where one of them at one site in that, that DNA has, has a G allele and the other has an A allele. So it's two alternate um, copies of, of what is encoded at one particular site in the genome, and we might call that site a, a locus. And so we can start to use the information in that in agri to start getting at what is the likelihood that this particular individual is, is a very close relative to another individual. So uh, just like humans, plants have families, they're parent plants and they have offspring. Those offspring have siblings. And when we try to manage a population of a highly threatened species or an endangered species, we try to maintain a population of individuals that are often as unrelated as possible. One reason is to promote their ability to respond evolutionarily to challenges that might come up in the future. And another reason is to try to avoid inbreeding depression. So when a population gets very small, there's an elevated probability that an individual will mate with another individual that, that's relatively closely related rather than a, a completely unrelated individual. And that starts to bring higher probability that their offspring will inherit two bad copies of a gene that might be rare in the population overall, but might be at quite high frequency within the family. So inbreeding increases the probability of starting to have negative consequences. Plants are pretty tricky. They can reproduce in a range of ways that we can't. They can clone, they can self-pollinate in a few different ways, and these variations can occur at the species level or even between individuals in the same population. No wonder plants are so successful. So given the range of reproductive strategies, is inbreeding then always a problem, an evolutionary dead end? So obviously plants itself don't have an issue with inbreeding. In the short term, however, in the long term, inbreeding still remains an issue because it has narrowed your genetic pool. So it's all nice and good for inbreeding if you can self or if you purge you know, all your deleterious alleles. Purging is in selfing species that can select a combination of alleles that are best suited to the current environment and get rid of the rest. As long as you can then increase in numbers and you can start to accumulate more diversity. Otherwise, if you stay in a small population, you are still going to be susceptible to change. So in the long term, you're still impacted by that bottleneck caused by inbreeding. So you need to consider the temporal impacts of selective forces around you to see how much inbreeding is, has an effect on the population. That exactly reflects what we thought might be affecting Hibertia. Small numbers of plants, small populations, geographically isolated with little chance to expand and little chance of gene flow, possibly long-lived clones. So what did we find out using genomic? We found out that it is a unique species. And that was, that was really exciting. It's distinct from all the others. It doesn't hybridise with other Hibertia. A lot of the plants are clones, big old clones. The plants that aren't clones, though, are mostly full or half siblings. That is, they share the same parents or the same mother. This is my attempt at applying that knowledge. 
because of the high levels of clonality and the high levels of kinship between individuals, it is a good candidate for an augmentation of genetic mixing. That's right. Is that? I mean, we can now do a translocation. We can select the individuals to maximize diversity, but we also increase or even reinitiate reproductive output. Then it can even help you with your experiment. So let's test this. Now that you know that this is a clone and this is a clone, let's cross-pollinate. That's what you want to do. And do a comparison with cross-pollination versus self-pollination from an informed starting point that you wouldn't have without doing the genetics. Which, incidentally, is exactly what we did. To figure out the mating system, we transferred pollen within and between the populations to see if plants could self-pollinate or did better with wild open pollination by clones and siblings or did the best with outcrossing, that is, mixing the pollen between unrelated populations. Hibertia are described as requiring buzz pollination. That is the vibrations from native bees that release pollen from the anther with only a tiny little hole in it. An anther, by the way, is the part of the flower that holds the pollen. So to be like a bee, I used the vibrating tip of an electric toothbrush to release pollen, which I tested by placing under a microscope and checking that pollen did come out, which it did. Some experts that I showed the anther to didn't actually think it needed vibration or buzzing. But to play it safe, I made like a bee and found out that the real pollinator is a buzzer. It's a sweat bee or lazy oglossum, which we recorded on camera traps and actually saw all over the plants anyway while we were hand pollinating. Important for conservation, we found out that Hibertia spinantha does not like self-pollination. It prefers to outcross. Excitingly, there was also an indication that it produced more seeds that were heavier when pollen between the populations was mixed. I'm going to pull out my laptop and just show you what I... Um, so we looked at... Vi- oh, crap. <laughs> Sorry, we looked at viability. Is it a scientific term? Yeah, yeah, crap. <laughs> um, so what we did find that we thought was quite interesting that when we looked at only the viable seeds, Mm -hmm. so the filled seeds, Mm -hmm. there was a significant difference in the weight of the seeds Mm -hmm. between Taramara and Cheltenham. So Taramara viable seeds, they were filled, were lighter than the viable seeds from Cheltenham, which we thought was really interesting. I mean, there could be gazillions of reasons and and it could be that Taramara, Taramara is the clone one, Mm -hmm. right? So because because you're a big clone, the resources are more difficult to spread out and so you end up with less resources used for, for reproductive, completely speculative. Mm. The other reason could be, again, a heterozygosity issue that at the end of the day, they are all relatively closely related, yeah. much more closely related, and so the fitness decreases, and that's yeah. one measure of fitness. Yes. Good. You should test them all. Well, I've grown them and see if there's a difference in growth and then we'll plant them and see if there's a difference in um, survival in a stressed mm. environment. That is almost everything we needed to know to help inform conservation. We know it's a good candidate for augmentation because there's evidence that inbreeding is starting to affect reproductive output. We also know that the small population size and the fragmentation mean ex situ conservation will be really valuable to research and as an insurance policy for the wild plants in case they are lost or damaged in the future. Our final question then is how do we grow them so that they will actually survive? 
This is where more collaborations have been invaluable. Since the beginning, Hornsby Council, especially Ross Rapman from the Community Nursery, has been working on establishing the ex situ conservation collection on nursery grounds. Okay, so this is our propagation tunnel house. Um, this side is uh, heated. Um, at the moment it's set on 23 degrees, so it's usually about 10 degrees warmer in here than outside. Um, this is our autumn sowing of seed, so we've got some um, Hibertia spinantha seeds there from November collection last year, 2020. And this end, we've got our cuttings, and yeah, so that's the um, entire Hibertia spinantha population. It's known. Cutting off every plant. Hibertia are pretty tricky to grow from seed, so we worked mostly with cuttings. And Ross perfected over three years the technique, finding it wasn't so much how you did it, but when. Striking plants need to happen in autumn, when plants were very healthy, preferably after a good wet summer. Cuttings need to be semi-hardwood, or that season's just hardened growth. That has the highest ability for cell differentiation. All right, so what we do, uh, so this is our tip cutting, um, actively growing at the top, but it's got a little bit of woodiness at the base, and then we strip the leaves off. Just give it a fresh cut there. And by taking the leaves, off the stem that way, it creates the little wounds on the tissue. The little scars will absorb the plant hormone. So this is a gel and the active constituent in it is indolbutric acid. That's three parts per million, so not very much, where it starts to heal. And when it's got to that stage, we'll know that the cell differentiation's underway. And then next will be roots will start. Ross and the team at Hornsby, including Ingrid, have researched the best potting mediums and found that a 50% mix of provenance soil, that is soil from the wild populations mixed in, helps with initial growth and may actually help with flower production and establishment post-planting. They've also installed an irrigated planted population because in the first planting attempt, the team had to carry over 1,200 litres of water just to keep them alive through a very long, hot summer. I was doing that too. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> Ingrid and Ross and the team have all been part of it and they have been steadfast. So you have found a population, <laughs> done the cuttings, propagated them in the nursery, planted them in the wild, watered them over a brutal summer, <laughs> propagated more, planted them in a new place, installed the irrigation. You didn't say you installed the irrigation. No. Yeah, I forgot. That was also yes, really hard. Yes, I was, uh, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, counted more flowers. Yeah and are now back out six years later, still monitoring them. 
Thanks, Ingrid. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> Well-planned conservation, including translocation, isn't something that can be rushed. But it shouldn't be intimidating. Most things have occurred simultaneously over a number of years and have relied on hundreds of volunteer hours, plus around $20,000 for the genomics work. I want to give the final word to someone that you haven't met yet. A quiet individual who, like Jacob from Karingai, is passionate about conservation and has made sure that the project has continued. This is Mark Hood from Hornsby Council. Mark and I were in the field in summer 2021, visiting another special area of urban bushland. Cooey! Hello! Where we have found the fifth population of Hibertia spinantha. This one is healthy and young and right next to houses where it has quietly continued unnoticed. I wanted to know, is it good for Council to have new populations of threatened species found? I think it is. It definitely helps inform us on how we manage our reserves. It's also a bit of a, a shining light amongst the gloom of development, um, showing that some of these things can you know, surprise us. And I think it shows hope that there certainly is value in it. And particularly this site, the diversity here is Quite amazing for such a small reserve, a great find out here. All of this has come from that initial persistence of Andrew Robinson. From these little things, bigger things have grown. And as I wander amongst the weed-free woodland of our latest discovery, I'm reminded of the gratitude that over the years I felt for all the people that have given their time and dedication to preserving this and other species. It is such a privilege that still we can go and visit these small urban reserves, find endangered species, and if we sit still long enough, we can watch the busy but very cute lazier glossum buzz pollinating. Every morning the sun rises for you. That was episode number six out of eight. I am Chantelle and I have loved bringing you plant heroes so far. Our gorgeous song is by Zoe Elliott. You can find her details in the show notes. If you're interested in getting in touch with anyone that we have spoken to in this episode, you can see their details and affiliations in the show notes, also on the website plant-heroes.com. Or you can send me a message and I can connect you, which actually I've done for a couple of other people so far. It's really rewarding to do that. If you have any questions for me, you can email me via the website, plant-heroes.com. Or if you have feedback, I would love to get it via our anonymous survey, which actually helps my PhD. It contributes to my research. So that would be wonderful. Until next time, I'm looking forward to talking to you about orchids. Every morning the sun rises for you.